You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. I'm going to start with just reading God's Word. I think that's a good place to start, as that's going to be a major topic for today. Hebrews 4, verse 12. Last week, we were speaking about the rest and the Sabbath rest that we enter through in verse 9 and 10. Verse 11 talks about how we're striving to enter that rest. And then in verse 12, a verse that some of you are probably more familiar with if you grew up in church or Sunday school. It's a verse that, as a kid, I had to memorize. And uh, in verse, 11, uh, verse 12, um, and it's very well known, and, and it moves right into one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, which is verse 16. And so I'm very excited to get into this passage and study it with you guys today. Verse 12, Hebrews 4 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of the joints and marrow and the discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Since then, verse 14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, I love that, right? Just like a, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Those are gonna be the verses we're focusing on, but I'm gonna continue reading throughout uh, till verse 10 of chapter five because it will introduce some things that we are gonna be talking about today and in the coming weeks. So in verse chapter five, verse one. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's speaking about priests and the priesthood. Verse two, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one should take this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Speaking of the Old Testament priests under Aaron. And verse five says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse six, as he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of flesh, of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Verse eight says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And this is a really, really cool verse, verse nine. And being made perfect or complete or whole or finished, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. If you're wondering who is Melchizedek, we'll be talking about that in the coming weeks. I'm just kind of introducing that idea right now. Um, and so some of those things are is a beautiful statements. We're gonna begin looking in a moment here more primarily at verse 12 and 13. But let's, let's open in prayer. Father, 
Uh, we come before you and we are very, very grateful for all the things that we've learned and sung and had our hearts encouraged with this morning. And I thank you for your church. I thank you for your people. God, would you just help me today to be able to Would you help me today to be able to communicate your word and not get in the way? Would you just speak through me as this time we open up your holy word and it is a fearful thing, Father. Your word is powerful and sharper and living. May your word speak today. May it divide us asunder. May it cut us to the core, but may, Lord, we also draw near to your throne to receive grace and mercy and help in time of need. Would we find that, Lord, the worship and reverence and awe of who you are and your greatness, but also the intimacy of your person and the nearness of your love and kindness to us. Father, thank you. May we praise your name forever as we've sung. You are good and we can learn much from you from your, your scripture today. Teach us in Jesus' name, amen. So every week, um, the service may be somewhat the same. You come in these doors and uh, might look a little different uh, depending on the week or the day. There's a primarily some of the same things you're gonna either be singing, they'll be praying, and they'll be reading the scripture. And uh, my best attempt as the elders and I, as we try to do our best to, to explain it and teach you and preach the scripture, but I think there's one thing you can be sure of here. Even though music changes throughout the centuries, styles may be different, whatever it might be, every week I think you can be sure of one thing, that you can come in here and, and you walk in those doors and, and this book will be opened in one way, shape, or form, right? We, we, we come in together and we open an old dusty book, right? <laughs> Reading a book is very interesting. If you think about what we do here on a regular basis, this is kind of a strange thing we do in some ways, right? You're like, when was the last time you just got together and all read a book together, you know? <laughs> when was the last time you read a book, right? Yeah. Reading is, is, is a part of life, it's part of, of being a Christian, reading these words. I think growing up, even for me, reading was always something that um, I loved to do. Um, I, I, and it, I, I think about it sometimes, in fact, the other day when somebody was asking me, like, you know, how, well, I have too many books and my desk is all cluttered and all this stuff, right? It's like books everywhere. But I think I grew up with um, two teachers as parents, so that's a good thing or a bad thing, right? But books were always in our household. I just had books everywhere. There was, my dad was always reading a book. My mom was always reading a book. Books were just around my family and my childhood books were, were just part of life. I was surrounded by books. And so some of you are like, well, I don't, I don't really enjoy reading. And I, I get that, I understand, that's okay but many of you will often enjoy a story, maybe a dramatized story or a dramatized book in a film or a movie or a show that is the same sense, it's the same story, it's words being acted out and, and put on a screen or words on a, uh, and, and truth being put on a page. You know, but words, as Josh was saying, or he loves to read old dead guys, I do as well, words from a longer time ago that still speak truth into our lives today. Words that are fun to read, like novels and fiction, and, or like we said, sh movies and, and stuff that we get to enjoy a story. 
Words are very interesting as we look at, uh, as we look at them. And in some ways, they're so simple. But then you begin trying to teach uh, your, a kid how to read. In fact, we're going through that right now with my, my daughter, trying to teach her how to read. And you're over there trying to sound out each individual letter, sounding it out. And then you're trying to describe to her why it's, this word means that in this context and all those things. And then in English, it gets very confusing. For some of you, it might be a second language. Some of these words mean the same thing and, or a different thing in whatever context it is. And, and all of these aspects, words are a very funny thing. In some ways, words are, are really, really capsules almost. Words are, are vessels for ideas. Words are containers. Containers that, that hold truth. Containers that could hold lies. Containers that communicate ideas and statements. A word holds something within it. Letters to words, words to sentences, sentences to paragraphs, paragraphs to books. These are the, the medium in which we carry and organize all of human thought, our thoughts and expressions of what makes us human. What we think is written down, it's passed down. We verbalize it through literary communication and through words. And, and in this way, words can almost sometimes take on a life of their own, can they not? Words can, can mean more than just a few things written on a page. And when it comes to the Bible, when it, when it comes to, as we refer to it, and as the word refers to itself, the word of God, when it comes to the Holy Scripture, we read through, through human hands, we read through human fingers and human lips that wrote these things down over the centuries and centuries. Words in the Bible, these words, these vessels, these containers for, if you would, spiritually speaking, for the word, the logos, the embodied divine, the holy mind of God communicated to us through the incarnate word of God, which is Jesus Christ, these then scriptural words give us understanding and knowledge and relationship to the one, the word, the Jesus. Jesus Christ, the word came alive, it literally lived among us, took on flesh, the word was God partook of the same things that we did as Hebrews says in chapter two, comes alive and it is in this living, breathing word, Jesus Christ that has been passed down through us through the heavens who is still alive. He sits at the right hand of God. He's not dead but he is alive and we read of him, we get to know him, we have a relationship with him through the Holy Spirit of God which illuminates our understanding through the words in the scripture. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, it breathes, inspires spiritual life into us through these words, these sounds, these sentences, these chapters, translated into every language on the face of the planet. These little black marks on a white piece of paper in our language that we call modern English speak out to us, calls to us as if Jesus himself is speaking to us. John six sixty three. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all, but the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. These words on a page are, at times, may feel as if the very breath of God 
inspiring life into minds and into hearts, transforming us from within to know truth, to know life, to know and hold fast to salvation because God is speaking to us. Because God's word has cut us deep. It cuts us to the core deeply like a divine surgeon with a double-edged sword, a scalpel if you would, to cut in and to remove the heart of stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh. It cuts deeply within us and discerns between right and wrong and gives us a sense of life and death. And it, it allows us to be born again in the spirit, the very word of God which transforms us. The word is not benign. The word of God is rather active and living and transformative. The word is not just read, but I would say in some ways through the spirit, it reads us. You come to know God as you do through God's word and in the process you become to know yourself. Your sin, your transgression, your iniquity, and your failure. And yet, in the same manner, you become to know that your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, but you know that the Holy Spirit has made salvation, has made a way through Jesus, through his grace and through his mercy and through his great salvation to cover all of that and to to give you life where there is death, to give you light where there is darkness. It's the word of God. To give you knowledge, to give you truth, but ultimately, at its core, to give you life. And you say, well that's kind of an odd beginning. Well I I think as we just reflect about the simplicity of simply coming between those doors and opening a book. That's what we do every week. It's so simple and it's so easy. And yet there is something spiritually transformative and there is something life and death about this, right? There is something discerning that cuts right down to the core that allows you to draw near to God or to harden your heart and fall away every time God's word is opened. And that's exactly what I believe here Hebrews has been building this case for. And it begins very, uh, or this message begins with a sense of this sword, the word of God. And And I'll be honest, as I was reading this, and like I said, I memorized this verse as a kid, And I didn't always know kind of leading into it what we've been talking about it. But if you've been joining with us the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That the people wandered in the wilderness. They came up to the edge, as Hebrews says. They came up to the edge and they did not believe God. They did not believe him. And through their disobedience, they wandered again for for years. And so this the sense of they coming to that edge, they disbelieved, they did not trust, they did not have faith in God. And yet he's saying that promised rest of entering God's promised Sabbath rest still remains for you and I today. So do not fail to reach it. Do not harden your hearts. If God is speaking to you today, listen, draw near to him. And then he shifts. It almost seems abrupt, like you're talking about rest and Sabbath rest and resting from all your works. And then he starts talking about a sword that cuts us right to the heart. You know, it's like kind of a strange shift. But I think it works very well as he's putting a capstone on his warning against disbelief and his encouragement and his exhortation to you who do believe to keep on keeping on, all right? 
And so he then has this sense about the word, this, this, this sword. And I think it does make sense if you think back to Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 says, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke. Spoke. So God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son Jesus. And then in verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by a word of his power. Chapter three speaks into this as well, where it says the Holy Spirit says in verse seven, it's the word that's like he's speaking. Then, then in ver- chapter four, verse seven, and in multiple places, this is uh, quoted from Psalm 95 in the Old Testament. Uh, it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's been speaking a lot about the word and speaking and talking. God spoke. And so the, the idea is, if God is speaking, your response is to listen and to believe and to walk and enter the rest that he has for you. And that offer stands today, right now. Will you believe and will you listen and will you trust him in your faith and walk in what he says? And so, so that's today, this hear the voice, listen, for the word of God is not something to be pushed aside or to get to it when you find it is convenient enough. Rather, the word of God, he says, is like a sword. And so then he, he describes that sword in, in ways here. Look at um, uh, Hebrews 4, verse 12. The word of God is living, active, and sharper. Some of you might be quicker. It's quick, it's active, it's, it's um, sharper, it's, it's gonna cut this idea. The first one I just want us to examine as we kind of walk through this is living. It is living. The scripture is a living book because we serve a living savior. It is, a, it is a faith, it is a belief that is relevant for you and for me, like it was relevant for people thousands of years ago because God is alive and we get to know God through his word, which is a living word because it is God speaking and transforming us as we get to know him in relationship with a living God right now. The scripture is alive through the inspired word. It's through the scripture that we come to know the incarnate word of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, God, has been made flesh. We get to have a relationship with that Jesus through his word and through the spirit that lives inside of us and illumines our understanding so the natural man and the spiritual man so that the spiritual man can understand what it is, the things that have been freely given to us by God. 1 Corinthians chapter two. It speaks of that beautiful picture of the Spirit coming and living within us and giving us understanding to the things that God has given us. It is that God's utterance, God's words, God speaks, it is God's breathing, this word inspired, that the holy word is an inspired word, that it is literally the droplets, the breath of God, that word inspired is like perspiration, this, this uh, respiration, this, that's where we get all of those words from, this, these droplets from God. The breath of God as he breathes life into a man in the garden. He breathes life into us here in this moment as well. And so we ought to treat it as such. 
But it's not an old dead book, right? But it's, it's alive. There's something different about this, right? It's living. And it's living, but it's also active. It's active. The word here is energes or energy or the word we get energetic, right? It is active. It's effective. It has energy. <laughs> like my daughter at 7.15 this morning running laps around the kitchen, literally sprinting like 15 laps as fast as she could. You're like, how in on earth is it possible to have that much energy at 7 in the morning, right? Energy, it's this beautiful picture of, of, of active power within us. The scripture is a, you could say, working book. It is alive and it is powerful. It is energy and is active. It's not an impersonal force. Even in our Sunday school we learned today, the Holy Spirit and the, the power that he gives is not an impersonal it. The Holy Spirit is a person. And here as we even think of this sense that, that it is energetic, it's not this impersonal working for this, the word of God is not a thing that we worship here. We don't worship the Bible, we worship God. But it is through God's word that we get to know the one in whom we worship. The way in which God speaks to us and is transforming us from within is through the Holy Scripture. It is a working book, it is a powerful book. It is a book that illuminates the darkness and gives us understanding into the most important things that we walk in and live in. And then it is sharper. It's sharper. You see that? It's a sharper than any two-edged sword. Kind of a strange thing, but you know, like a two-edged sword, this, this uh, instrument of, of, of war used by a, a, a Roman soldier, a, a Roman short sword was probably what they're talking about. It's spoken in scripture in many actually other places. Ephesians 6, the, you, know, you, you speak about the, the whole armor of God the sword of the spirit or these other things where these pictures of this imagery of war is used in many different places. Revelation 1, 16, 2, 12, and 19, 15 speaks about the sharp sword that proceeds from the mouth of the son of man. The spoken word of judgment is often spoken of in, in relationship to the word of God that judges and cuts down to the core. And here Hebrews 4, the sense of the word is a sharp word of discernment. It penetrates the darkest corners of human existence. George Guthrie says, I love that, penetrates the darkness corners of human existence. Uh, maybe you heard of the phrase, it cuts to the quick, right? Cuts you to the core. What does that mean? It's this almost cutting down, as it says, to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, but right before that, it gives the picture of cutting down to the joint and to the marrow, like cutting the bone so you can see what's in the bone, what gives that, that, that life there within the very deepest parts of our body. It's a, it's a sword cuts down and it exposes as well. It not just cuts, but it cuts to reveal. Almost like a mechanic, right? A mechanic, uh, you look at the outside of the vehicle, it all looks great, but what's underneath the hood is what really matters. When you purchase a car, or on Facebook Marketplace, you go to purchase a used vehicle, right? And you go to purchase that vehicle. You want to know what's in the inside. What are the innards of that car? Is it a working car? Oh, it looks nice on the outside, but what's going on in the inside? You've got to cut down and figure out what that is. Or a surgeon on the outside, or as Brad's going to be going to Peru here as a surgeon, and he's going to be going to Peru. I think it's with Scalpel and the Cross, the ministry that he works with. They'll be doing surgeries and opening people up and exposing the inner workings of their bodies, using a, a, a knife to cut down into the body and open up and see the inner recesses of the heart, you could say. 
for, for that's what he says here, the, the inner, the, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The heart cut down deep. The word penetrates. For, for we can project to be a certain kind of person to other people, right? We can project an image online. I can project to you the Instagram life, right? Of my perfect living habitat, right? And then all behind the screen is something totally different, right? We can project all sorts of things. We can project who we want to be and hide who we really are on the inside. But this passage is telling us that you cannot hide from God. God's word reads you like a book. It knows the inner thoughts and the intentions of your heart. So you might have other people fooled. My goodness, you you might have one another fooled. You might have me fooled. But the whole point is when the word of God cuts you deep, you cannot fool the word of God and you cannot fool God. He knows. He knows. Scripture says here that it discerns. No creature, verse 13, is hidden. Nobody. And in fact, it gives a graphic image here that It is in the sense that everyone is naked and exposed to the eye of God. And it goes back to Genesis of that they were naked and ashamed. Sin was ever present and they hid before God in the garden. And in the same manner, we come before God and our very heart is exposed before him. We cannot hide from him. Scripture, in a sense here, strips us bare. It leaves us naked and exposed before God as our holy and righteous judge. It's a stark image. And I think I'm trying to get across to you the, the aggression or the, the aggressive nature of this passage, a sword cutting you deep and exposing you bare before God to judge your, and yet the beauty of this, what's so incredible about this passage is it doesn't end there. Are we not thankful for that? That we don't end with that, but rather, what's so incredible is that God speaks life and love to you despite what he's seen in your heart. Despite what he knows, that no one else knows those things within you. He still loves you. He still died for you. Even though he knows what's in your heart. That's called grace. <laughs> that, that's called like I don't deserve that. That God is still speaking his word to me even though he sees my thoughts and my heart. My terrible hatred and bitterness towards others. He sees my pride and yet he does not utterly forsake me. My wicked and deceitful, terrible, blasphemous heart is exposed to God but those who who try to hide in shame from him instead of seeking out in faith and belief to cover that up with the covering that God has provided, the blood of Jesus Christ, that covers our sin and saves us, that we can then, as it says in this passage that we're getting to, that we can then instead not hide in shame like in the garden, but come boldly to the throne of grace to receive help in time of need, that you can now walk in confidence and boldness to God in an open relationship with him free of this shame and guilt all the time. It's a beautiful thing. This is given us in an example, 
in the Old Testament, as Hebrews does as well. We've been talking about it in our small group last week. We were talking more in depth about this in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Do you remember this for some of you who were studying this in your, in your own time? And last week we talked about it in more depth. But in Numbers 13 and 14, it's a story about, about um, the Old Testament when the spies went into the promised land, right? And, and they did not believe. And they came back and they said, look, there's giants in the land. We can't do it. We gotta get out of here. And Joshua and Caleb believed. God said, no one's gonna enter this promised land except Joshua and Caleb. And so they, they go through this thing and yet there's a unique storyline that was brought to my attention in our small group. Some others were mentioning it and how it kind of related to what we're talking about today and that we're about to speak about Jesus as the high priest interceding for us who gives us a sacrifice to cover our sin. And yet we see that the people rebel against God and God is going to judge and destroy them. And, and Moses, it says in, 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 in Numbers 14, verse 19, Moses actually intercedes for the people. He intercedes for the people. And he becomes, in a sense, a type of Christ that is to come later. That he becomes an intercessor. He becomes a high priest mediating between God's holiness and the people's sin and rebellion. He becomes the mediator to intercede between the two. Moses, in a very inferior way to the one of whom is to come, which is in Hebrews that we read about Jesus Christ, our great high priest. But here Moses says, in Hebrews, uh, sorry, Numbers chapter 14, verse 19, it says, please pardon the, uh, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have now forgiven this people from Egypt until now. He's actually in conversation with God. It's an extraordinary passage. You read it on your own time, Numbers 14, but he actually says, look, please pardon them. Pardon their iniquity. Forgive them. And he makes a testimony to their, to their God's faithfulness and steadfast love and his long suffering, he speaks about it. And yet Moses is a type of Christ because Moses eventually will die and does not live in order to make intercession for the people of God. But here what we're reading about in Hebrews is that Jesus was the perfect high priest. He was the one who always lives to make intercession for us. And he sits at the right hand of God as our priest right now. He mediates on our behalf Hebrews 4.1, as a high priest was, uh, sorry, Hebrews 5.1 says, a high priest was chosen from among men and is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for God. Jesus is our better high priest. And look at verse 14, Hebrews 4 verse 14, you go there. And it introduces this idea of the, the, idea of the high priest who's passed through the heavens. Look at this, Hebrews um, Four, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. We have a high priest who's passed through the heavens. What is he talking about? I actually did not check this with the booth, but I assume they have the picture of the tabernacle. I, I think they do. Yes, they did. Great, look at that. They're on top of it. I didn't even need to check with them. Uh, they, they, we have this picture. I wanted to get us a little bit of a visual just because when we look at Hebrews, there's so much, old, so much Old Testament imagery that we sometimes forget and get muddled up. But when he's saying that Jesus passed through, what is he talking about? Well, many of you who understand the way the tabernacle worked and that even of the temple, that there were uh, this sense that the, only the priests could go into the holy of holies, uh, only the priests could go into the holy place, and only the great high priest once a year could go into the holy of holies. 
and there was a great veil, a thick tapestry, a veil that was between the holy place and the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, where it is said that God's presence would rest among the people. And it's in this passage that we read about how incredible this storyline is. And so with that in mind, I want to just read something to you. And it says this in Hebrews 9, verse 1. You can even look at that as I read it. It says Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations of worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent or a tabernacle was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind that, the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place or the holy of holies, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides of gold in which there was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that had budded and the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And above it were the cherubim, the glory of the overshadowing of the mercy seat. And then he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail because the author is saying, look, I've never been there and I've never seen it, you know. It's incredible as they describe in the Old Testament describes what the process would be of going into that Holy of Holies in order to make a representation for these things. And so if you were to look at Leviticus, I know it's your favorite book to read from, but I'm gonna read just a few verses from Leviticus chapter 16 that describes how an incredible statement it is in Hebrews for Jesus Christ to be our high priest, to pass through the veil, to go right through that veil that covered, go right through and to be into the Holy of Holies and to be there for eternity, forever in the presence of God. He is that high priest that makes intercession for us where we were unholy, we could not go into that place. Jesus passes through the veil into heaven to be with God and to make intercession for us. For in Leviticus 16, it describes the great length and the great process that it would have taken for the people to make a covering, or the word would be atonement for sin. God laid this out as a, as a foreshadowing of the substance that would be Christ one day. The foreshadowing of all of that is written here in Leviticus 16. It's actually a very interesting read, if you can, again, on your own time, but in Leviticus 16 says, the Lord spoke to Moses, verse one, after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord had died, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. Wow. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull, from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen coat and shall have a linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist, wear a linen turban and the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take them into the congregation of the people of Israel, two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for the burnt offering. Aaron shall offer a bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house before he makes atonement for the people of God. Do you get that? Aaron, a human being, had to go into the Holy of Holies, a place where he could be struck dead. And he had to make an atonement for his own sins by making sacrifice. He has, in a way, was an imperfect high priest by nature of his own sin. He had to make atonement for himself. He would then go in, in verse 14, and sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat. He then killed a goat. They, they had this aspect in verse 20. And when he has, in verse 20 says, and when he had made end of atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present a live, the live goat 
He shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all of their transgressions and all of their sins and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is at readiness. And the goat shall bear all the iniquities of itself into a remote area and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness and die. And it goes on and it gives another description. And the point is I'm trying to get us into our head the background of the images that would be going through the people's mind when Hebrews chapter four says we have a greater high priest than any of that. One who does not pass into an earthly tent but one that is made with holy hands in heaven above. A one who is, as it says, not able to completely sympathize with our weaknesses because I know what you're thinking. You're like, God, how could he sympathize with us? Well, God is made flesh. He suffered and died just like we have. He knows what it's like to be tempted and yet he does so without sin, verse 15. And he becomes our perfect high priest who as it says in Matthew 27, verse 50, Jesus cried out as he died on the cross with a loud voice and yielded up the spirit and behold the curtain, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook. Jesus enters into the Holy of Holies and makes, makes intercession for you and for me, for your sins and for mine. Our heart is laid bare before him as the word of God convicts me of my sin. It convicts me that I do not measure up, and yet Jesus comes in and says, I will take that for you. I will intercede for you. I am your sacrifice and I am your priest who represents you right now. I am also your king, your Lord and savior. He enters the holy of holies. He becomes for us our better high priest. And why is he better? Well, the passage goes on in chapter five and chapter six and chapter seven to describe it for you. We don't have time to get it in all today. But by location, he's not in a physical tent. He's with, in heaven with God, at the right hand of God. He's in authority to judge and to intercede. And by location, he's a better high priest than Aaron or any high priest that came before. And by understanding, he sympathizes and understands what we feel. We cry out in our suffering and our hardship and our difficulty and our sorrow. And he knows and feels all of those things with us. That's what's so extraordinary about the Christian faith. We do not serve a God who is aloof and unaware of our, of, of our struggles, but one who, like as we are, sympathizes with our weaknesses and walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death so that we can not fear any evil but pass through the other side. He, he learns, even in this chapter five, it's a complicated topic, but he, he even learns obedience in the sense that through his suffering, God himself learned suffering and learned the obedience. Not that he learned from disobedience, but that in the sense that he learned to obey the will of God in the garden of Gethsemane, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but may your will be done. I obey I go to the cross, Jesus has done this and in Philippians 2 it speaks about that Jesus was found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. He was also the holy sacrifice. Jesus was without sin, unstained and perfect. It's a beautiful picture that he is tempted like we are, he has been, he has been tried like we are and yet he is without sin. He is, as Hebrews 7 says, the holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. That is Jesus, the Son of God. And then he lives eternally to make this sacrifice. It's an eternal thing, and a temporary thing, and not a sacrifice that needs to be made year after year, week after week, 
but one that is made and is a final sacrifice. Hebrews 7 says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save you to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always. We have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So that is how we move from Hebrews chapter four, verse one, where it says, let us fear, lest you fall away and disobey. It says, let us fear the holy God. That is how we move from that to Hebrews four sixteen, which we're gonna look at as we close, to let us draw near. You guys see that? Let us fear the great God, unless we, lack the faith to walk in and enter the promised land. But now, in a sense, as we believe and as we enter, we draw near and we are no longer fear. It's this picture that I just feels so under, right for me. When you're in a relationship with God, it says in verse 16, let us then with confidence, some of your translations might say, boldly go before the throne of grace to draw near to him, hold fast with confidence, you didn't just waltz up into the Holy of Holies. <laughs> Any old person in the Israelite nation didn't just walk in to the tabernacle whenever they felt like it, waltz right into the Holy of Holies. No, no, no. You don't just go up before a throne. A king like Esther didn't even dare as the queen to just go up whenever she felt like it. She could be struck dead when on a word from the king. You don't just go up with that, but yet now in a relationship with Jesus as our intercessor, with Jesus in relationship with him, we can now go boldly into the throne room. And we are adopted into this family and we can go to his throne whenever we want. It's pretty amazing. I think of in my, in my head, I have this picture, it's flashcards from, it's a very famous picture from, uh, it's JFK, it's John Jr. playing under the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office of his father, the president at that time, JFK sat at the desk in the Oval Office, a, a place that represented authority and power in the nation, and John Jr., a little kid, his son, just played under the desk like it was dad's office. <laughs> he just went into it, he didn't fear the, the power that the Oval Office had. It was simply dad, you know, in a, in a much lesser situation. Myself, I grew up in a school where my dad was the principal and everybody feared going to the principal's office, right? Many of you have sent there many times. I know some of you, right? And yet for me, going to the principal's office was not this place that I feared, but a place that I walked boldly into the principal's office because it was my dad with confidence, I could go to my dad. Now it did kind of stink when you got older and you got in trouble, you got it at school and you got it again at home, you know, because the principal goes home with you. So, um, but uh, that sense where we go boldly before the throne of grace to receive help in time of need. The, this priest king, this Melchizedek-like figure that we'll get into in the coming weeks is one who bridges the chasm. As we sang earlier, our sins are many, but his mercy is more. As we're about to close the service with the song Living Hope, how great a chasm that lay between us. How, how high the mountain I could not climb. 
In desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope, our great high priest. I want to close with with one final thought on verse 16. It's actually words that maybe some of you have heard some of this thought. It's it's with bitter sweetness that I share these. For I I shared, the last time I I talked about this verse, the last time I shared these thoughts was was at our dear friend Kenny Savala's funeral. And this verse was brought to my mind and I I felt inclined to share this verse and, and it just tied in here but it, it gives sense to the reality where the rubber meets the road that we can talk theologically about all these things, but how in the world is it that any of this really helps? Do you see that in verse 16? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help. The word help is a, is a fascinating word. I to, you can do a study on it sometime and the, the word help, the Greek word is boethia, and it actually is used in very limited places in the New Testament. One of the places it's used is in Acts 27, verse 17, where it describes a situation of a storm that's come upon a ship that's running along the lee of a small island called Cauda. And as they are in this ship and in this storm, they, they hoist up the ship in order to prepare for the oncoming storm. And it says they use helps or they use supports to undergird the ship to keep the hull from bursting apart. The word help is also used here in Hebrews 4.16 to describe the help that God provides for us. For this term, it really refers to the idea of what's known as frapping a vessel. They take supporting ropes and undergird the ship in order to keep it from splitting apart, they wrap ropes around the hull of the ship and winch them down above the board to provide an exterior strapping support for the hull, to hold it together, to keep it from bursting apart in the beating of the waves and the wind. And in Acts 17, they supported the undergird of the ship. Here in Hebrews 4.16, the word is to help. Boethia, God helps us. It is a word of extreme urgency and immediacy. It's an urgent call for help. There's a distress beacon. There's a sense of, I need help to arrive now. And it's in that moment that we go to the throne to receive that effectual, active, living help. No doubt at times life might feel storm-tossed. No doubt there are times And we have this restless wandering in the wilderness where we are longing for that promised Sabbath rest where we need the faith to keep on keeping on. And and we, what is it that will keep us from splitting apart? What is it that will keep us from sinking? How can I stay afloat? How can I face loss or death or hardship, trial, sickness, difficulty, whatever this life may bring? How is it we face any of that? How is it that I may keep from splitting apart? You could say, who will help me? Have you ever been there? In the darkness of the night, you cry out to God, Lord, help me. It's in that help. It's as if the, the writer here gives us a picture of God wrapping his ropes around you to keep you from splitting apart, to wrapping around the offering and the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ to cover your failures and to give you his success and victory in place of them. 
It's to fly to Jesus where we find the help we need. Fly to Jesus for the shelter we need. Fly to Jesus for the sacrifice he has made. We fly to Jesus for he sympathizes with you and understands. We fly to Jesus because he represents us to God. We fly to Jesus because he is my advocate and my friend. We fly to Jesus because he is my great high priest. And we fly to Jesus because as Hebrews 5.9 says, he is the source of salvation. We fly to Jesus because ultimately, as we're about to sing, he is our living hope. Let's close in prayer. Father, come before you needing these truths today, knowing, God, that we are so grateful, so thankful, because, God, you make intercession for us, that you mediate between God and man. You are the man, the God-man, Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the one who saves. Thank you, God, for this. Lord, we need you. Thank you for today, the joy that we have, the good news that we hear, the voice of God that speaks to us through your scripture, speaks to us right now as we walk into your presence here, as we come boldly before your throne of grace to sing your praises, knowing, God, that you will give us the help we need for whatever we face. Thank you, God, for understanding. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you, God, for your grace and mercy. And thank you, God, for your love upon this church today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.